It's a second down and three. Jackson takes it himself. Look at him dart back and forth. Oh, he broke his ankles. Now he's got an entourage and he's got a touchdown. He is Houdini. Stadium and arena projects are perfect places for corrupt politicians to pitch a ball, drop a puck, or play hide the cash. Today we're talking about scams and cons surrounding sports venues. Before retiring a few years ago, I spent more than 20 years publishing a guide and database for those in the construction industry involved in building sports venues. During that time, I wrote a lot about how teams and leagues mislead communities, leaving taxpayers on the hook for millions of dollars to be paid over 15 to 20 years. There were also public officials who used these unique projects to line their own pockets. Whether it's a ballpark, stadium, or arena, these are the basics of how the stadium tango works. To illustrate, we'll use a fictional team. We'll call them the Peacocks. The Peacocks want to open a new stadium in about five years. It discreetly leaks that thinking to the press which begins running stories and taking the temperature of local politicians. Odds are the community still owes money on the existing stadium it helped build around 15 years earlier. A common clause in these new leases is that the venue must have the same benefits and technology currently held by the top one-third of the league's teams. The community has struggled to meet those obligations, because of an arms race driven by upgrades at other venues, so the Peacocks make the upgrades in exchange for an IOU. When the Peacocks get around to officially announcing plans for a new stadium, politicians must decide if they want to invest in a new venue, and if so, how much. Does the team have close to a billion dollars in its bank accounts? Probably not, but even if they did, Why spend it when better options are available? One option is sales of seat licenses. These licenses give fans a chance to own a seat as long as they continue to buy season tickets. That's right. Fans must pay thousands of dollars just to have the right to buy season tickets. The price of the license is generally tied to the location of the seat. It's real estate. So location, location, location is the key. The Peacocks use the seat license money to count toward its investment. The argument goes that the team could keep the money, but then they'd have to put out cash for that share of the stadium. In essence, the Peacocks use fans' money as a no-interest loan to help finance the stadium. Plus, the team gets to keep the revenue from ongoing season ticket sales. If a fan stops buying season tickets, the license evaporates, and the team sells it again. Those seat licenses 
are often sold by a public entity so the team doesn't have to pay taxes on the revenue. That means local, state, and national taxpayers take the hit. Sales and other taxes on land surrounding the stadium, including some private land, are redirected to the community's share of the debt. That money would have gone into the general fund to pay for things like police, fire, ambulances, street repairs, schools, and other community needs. The costs of these services continue to increase, but there's less revenue to make up the difference. In some cases, communities must increase taxes. The Peacocks also have access to low-cost loans from the league, so that reduces its borrowing cost. The deal is set. Contracts are let and construction begins. Millions of dollars will change hands, creating opportunities for graft. And we'll get into those later. The Peacocks, meanwhile, begin to invest heavily in their product, winning more games and driving up fan interest. That increased interest allows teams to boost prices on season tickets so those license holders get dinged again. They can't not buy tickets or they will have wasted their money on the license, which is likely non-refundable. Parking, concessions, and other retail items go up in price because seats are selling fast. The sales taxes from those sales go to the community to pay the debt while the team keeps the profit. As the tango ends, the venue opens, fans pony up their money, and the team has mostly used other people's money to pay for its share of the stadium. Now we must ask, was it all worth it for the community? Tourism promoters say it absolutely is because of all the people who will visit the community, especially the Super Bowl, which the league regularly promises to teams who get new stadiums. Let's take a look at the Super Bowl and the revenues it generates. Local tourism officials drool at the thought of all those fans and media coming to town and the free publicity they'll get. Now keep in mind that the teams playing are nearly always from out of town, and the local team gets only a small share of the revenue. This is the NFL show, and it gets most of the revenue. This is Mina Kimes, a senior writer for ESPN magazine, talking about the 2008 Super Bowl held in Glendale, Arizona. The city hosted the game in 2008, and I had read that they had said, oh, we actually lost money, which was surprising. So I called the mayor, who told me not only did we lose money then, we're totally going to lose money this year, which was an absolutely stunning statement from a public official. So the game is in Glendale, but many of the events, the tourists, the hotels, are actually in Phoenix and Scottsdale. So you're going to have a lot of people coming in for the game and then leaving, and the city has to spend money on security, costs like that. Estimates suggest the NFL gets about $1.8 billion from the game. That includes tickets, TV rights, sponsorships, merchandise sales, and more. Fans who bought season tickets or expensive seat licenses to help build the stadium are out of luck. The NFL owns those seats for the game. If you spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on a luxury suite, odds are good you won't be able to use it for the Super Bowl, as the NFL wants them for league sponsors and other VIPs. In fact, a lot of economists will, who are independent right, will come out and say, actually, the benefits of these games, and especially stadiums, are incredibly overblown uh, because in a lot of cases, you're displacing other tourists that would normally be in, especially a warm place like Phoenix in the winter. And oftentimes, it's indirect spending, publicity, things you can't really put a clear number on. 
In 2019, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution asked if cities made money on the game. It found the game cost Atlanta some $46 million. This came in the form of sales tax concessions, a hotel-motel tax designated for major events, reimbursement for any state or local taxes connected with the event, and $20 million pledged by local businesses. The city also had to pay for municipal services surrounding the event, while also maintaining services elsewhere in the city. Some businesses do make money, hotels can raise their rates, and rent hospitality suites that require food and beverage services. Car rental companies and airlines also inflate their pricing. Restaurants can easily turn tables. But most of that money goes to out-of-town owners. So is the Super Bowl and promises of great benefits of building an NFL stadium a scam? In my view, pretty much. Most of the money that comes into town leaves in the pockets of non-residents. So while the Super Bowl that was promised when local officials signed on to build the stadium is delivered, its benefits are overblown. This brings us to leases and construction contracts. These are places where a lot of mischief happens. Leases and associated documents needed to build a stadium are complex, and they require money from many different and often unfamiliar sources. Dozens of contracts need to be let, many to very specialized firms whose services smaller communities are not equipped to evaluate. Plus, there are a truckload of permits for concrete, plumbing, electrical, internet services, security, and the list goes on. Many of those chores are overseen by the team, as it impacts the product they want to present to their fans. But the infrastructure to support those services often comes from a combination of public and team coffers just ready to be spread among greedy hands. Big-time scams are run by big teams and big leagues. But there's plenty of action down in the minors. Let's move from the hard-hitting world of football to the genial game of golf. ESPN founder Bill Rasmussen unveiled plans for the first-of-its-kind golf venue in 1996. It was supposed to be a $100 million project that would include luxury suites, 12,000 seats, and would be called Stadium Naples. It was never built. Plans fell apart under controversy and public outrage when the Naples Daily News revealed that Collier County Commissioner John Norris had negotiated for a stake in the venue estimated at $7.5 million before casting votes to benefit developers. State investigators came in, and their investigation into the scam resulted in charges against 10 people, four public officials, five business leaders, and an attorney. In 2004, the legal cases wrapped up, and Norris struck a deal with prosecutors. No mulligans allowed here, Norris. It's time for football in Texas, and NBC's Today Show tells us all about it. High school football is like a religion for many here in Texas. The latest shrine to the sport just outside Houston would put many college stadiums to shame. This morning, we take you inside. 
Even in a state where everything's bigger, the cost of this new high school football stadium is making headlines. The price tag? A staggering $72 million. The most expensive high school stadium in the country, costing more than many college stadiums. It includes seating for 12,000, LED lights that display the home team's colors, a large event space overlooking the pristine field, and even luxury boxes for corporate sponsors. Quite a view from up here. Great view. The $72 million was mostly paid for by Katie taxpayers, minus a few million that was made by selling the naming rights. Katie may be the most expensive, but it's hardly the only high school stadium in Texas with an eye-popping price tag. Cross-state rivals in Allen, Texas, outside Dallas, have a $60 million stadium. And in nearby McKinney, they're spending $70 million bucks for a stadium that's under construction. There's more. This time from Fox 4 in Dallas-Fort Worth about another high school megastadium. Allen High School's $60 million football stadium will be closed for the entire upcoming season. Today, the superintendent called it a matter of public safety. The district shut down the stadium in February after cracks were discovered on the stadium's concourse. At first, the problem was explained as shrinking concrete. But a new report lays out flaws in the stadium's design. Already, graduation's been moved to American Airlines Center, and now the football team will have only three home games. There is a lot of finger-pointing, of course, but in the end, between the contractors, insurance, and others, taxpayers didn't have to pay for repairs. But that still doesn't take away from the lost anticipation of playing in a new, very expensive stadium. Were these stadium scams? You'll need to decide that. Does a high school really need a $70 million stadium with state-of-the-art broadcast facilities? That was their call, and after all, it's Texas. From the southwest to the northeast, we go to Ramapo, New York, where city officials sold taxpayers on the idea of a minor league ballpark they really didn't want. In fact, they voted against it. Some city leaders felt they shouldn't let the voters' will get in the way of a good scam, so they moved forward. According to federal prosecutors, Christopher St. Lawrence and Aaron Trudler, the former executive of the nonprofit Ramapo Local Development Corporation, cooked the books and lied to investors about the financial state of the town's finances. St. Lawrence inflated the bottom line number in the town's general fund, while Trudler's Local Development Corporation issued $25 million in bonds to build Provident Bank Park in 2011. They told investors the bonds were being repaid with money generated by the ballpark and a planned condominium development. The company said its money would be used for the project, but it was really financed from bank loans or from town money. And that was just the start. CBS New York tells the tale. A town proposal to build this minor league ballpark struck out with Ramapo voters in 2010. 70% voted no. Longtime town supervisor Christopher St. Lawrence built it anyway, and in the process may have broken the law. Whether you run a corporation or you lead a town, you are not allowed to cook the books, plain and simple. 
The U.S. attorney used charts to illustrate, claiming St. Lawrence and his head of development, Aaron Trudler, falsified statements to make it seem the town had money in its general fund and could afford to float $100 million in bonds to build the ballpark and other projects. In fact, the town was deep in the red. St. Lawrence and Trudler lied repeatedly about the town's finances, deceiving both the citizens of Ramapo as well as thousands of bond investors. The investigation underway for some time. The FBI raided Town Hall in 2013. Investigators credit a whistleblower inside St. Lawrence's office for reporting the allegations. It's not clear if anyone personally profited from this scheme, and the feds couldn't say why Supervisor St. Lawrence was so determined to build this ballpark that he allegedly cooked the books. Of course there's more. An auditor and one of its senior partners agreed to pay more than a half million dollars in penalties for issuing fraudulent audit reports in connection with municipal bonds sought by the town of Ramapo for the ballpark. The feds indicted St. Lawrence and Trudler, a former deputy town attorney who headed the development corporation. The U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission also filed civil charges that mirrored the federal criminal case against both men along with town attorney Michael Klein and tax receiver Nat Oberman. As part of the settlement with the SEC, auditors forfeited about $380,000 in fees and interest and paid a $100,000 penalty. The SEC said the auditor allowed Ramapo to record a $3.8 million receivable in its general fund for a property sale that didn't happen. Corruption-related charges were also filed against Councilman Samuel Tess, who later pleaded guilty to state misconduct charges and resigned. Chief Building Inspector Anthony Malia faced 100 felony charges, alleging he gave builders cut-rate fees, depriving town taxpayers of more than $100,000. That was just a nest of scams. The Anaheim City Council was primed and ready to sell the Angels Stadium to team owner Artie Marino, but at the last minute, the $320 million agreement was stopped. It turned out that Mayor Henry Sidhu resigned in what the FBI called a cabal of corruption in city government. The city planned to ask the Orange County Superior Court to declare the deal invalid because of concerns of conflict of interest and that the transaction was not at arm's length, as Marino's management company said in a letter demanding that the council approve the sale. Terry Sidhu is out. He's under FBI investigation, as you just reported. Now, the investigators say that he leaked information to the Angels baseball team related to the stadium deal, hoping to receive a quid pro quo of a million-dollar campaign contribution. Now, we just spoke moments ago to the mayor pro tem, and he reacted with surprise. Let's listen. These allegations came to me as much as a surprise as they did to the general public. The information was just released last Monday, and that was the first I heard of it, along with everyone else. It did come as a surprise to me. 
Well, so far, the Angels baseball team is not implicated in this. The $360 million deal for the team is on hold. Now, we did hear from Sidhu's lawyer. He said this in a prepared statement. A fair and thorough investigation will prove that the mayor did not leak secret information in hopes of a later campaign contribution. That was Fox 11 Los Angeles. How does this story end? Well, it's too recent to know if the allegations are true and how many people are involved. From where I stand, stadium and ballpark deals involve sophisticated players trying to manipulate a mark, usually one with public money. Deals for new stadiums and ballparks come around rarely, and there are many stakeholders like tourism officials who prod public officials to go along with their rosy predictions, predictions that rarely come true. Now, arenas, those are another story. They may host a basketball team, a hockey franchise, or sometimes both. They provide regular booking dates and press hard for the best ones. But arenas are used for other things. They're great for concerts, giving residents access to entertainment that requires that amount of space. Colleges and high schools often use them for graduation ceremonies. Very large companies may also use them for sales and other meetings. Sure, the pro teams will dictate a lot, but the public benefits from other amenities it provides. Is it worth public investment in a stadium or ballpark? If it's what the public wants, then yes. San Diego refused to play that game and saw the Chargers leave for Los Angeles. The city hasn't been hurt by that decision, if it's been hurt at all. Whatever is decided, keep in mind that the team is playing on its own turf, and the visitors are nearly always the underdogs. If you enjoy the podcast and want to support it, please consider doing so via Patreon. For just $10 a month, you'll help us keep the lights on so we can continue to create great content for you. You can sign up at patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, then search for Scams and Cons. There'll be a link in the show notes. We'll be back in two weeks. Thanks for listening. 3AM, the comedy horror podcast that holds weekly gatherings around the campfire. Let me tell you what you're going to get. You're going to hear stories about demonic possessions, prison stabbings, skinwalkers, glitches in the Matrix, cult leaders, missing 411, night marchers, Operation Paperclip, Mesopotamian devil worship, and so many monsters it'll give Kanye West a runaway for his money. Pop and meme culture also aren't off topic. A camp where laughs and scares are constantly competing for first place. We're just a group of friends trying to bust each other's balls, find the best stories, and expand the circle in the process. 3AM, the comedy horror podcast, not for the faint or fragile of heart. Let's go. Let's go.